Uh, we're going to be looking today at um, a truth that, uh, that gets tested out. And so I just want to share with you, I'll just get this out of the way right away. Um, so we had a graduation party for my son on Friday night and had, I don't know, a whole bunch of kids at our house and celebrated. And, um, and then last night we had a different celebration, uh, not a celebration, a different gathering, and so uh, one of my son's friends uh, and the captain of the football team with my son uh, drowned yesterday uh, afternoon, and so, so, um, yeah, um, so we had a long night, a very long night, and there's uh, 50-some kids, um, really close group of kids who are really grieving today, and um, and yet, uh, uh, if I could just invite you to pray for, for them, uh, we've been praying for these kids for years, and many of whom have no dads, many of them, and have gone through lots of hard things. Many of them have lost their parents. We sat around last night talking about the loss of, of Max, that's the boy's name, and I was just recounting how many of these kids have no, no dads. Some of them have seen their parents die. And so, and yet most of them don't know Jesus. And so last night, uh, we had a chance to share the gospel and to pray. And so, pray for these kids to come to Christ. Pray for them to know that there is no other hope, that football accolades and and school accolades and scholarships and hopes and dreams for the future, while great and wonderful, they don't mean anything when it comes to moments like this. Uh, there's only one thing that matters, only one thing that gets tested out. And, and what gets tested out is what's in Psalm 16. And what we just sang about, like, are our eyes on Christ? Do we really know him? Uh, we, we find out in moments where all heck turns loose whether or not we really, really believe in these truths that we just uh, pronounced and said together. So, I just want to say that up front. And, uh, and so, as, as we're reading this psalm today, sometimes God gives us opportunities to, to go a little deeper, right? To dive a little deeper and dig deeper in our lives. And so... Um, and you can just pray for my family too. I just found out, yeah, I don't know, just a crazy time. So um, a childhood friend and a family or a family member of ours also uh, was shot last night uh, because of uh, it was a kind of a murder suicide or something. We're not totally sure, but so yeah, that was happening as well last night. So so. That feels weird to even just say all that stuff, right? So, but let's stand and let's read Psalm 16 because um, this is where we have to dive into God's word and this is where we have to really wrestle with the reality of what really matters. And so in light of, in light of things that happen in our lives around us and, and in some ways these are just on top of all the other crap that all of us are dealing with, right? Honestly, the world, it, things are just heavy and crazy. 
And, and yet we sing about things like, we will keep our eyes on you. And that's exactly what David is trying to do in the midst of a very hard thing. So, uh, let's read the, oh, thank you very much, Peggy. <laughs> so, yeah. So, hear these words in a different way today, in a powerful way. David says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or, I, or, or take their names on my lips. For the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You, will, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. And in the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices and my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the grave, or let the Holy One see corruption. For you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Father, I pray that these words would strengthen us today. I pray that we would press into the reality of your presence. That God, without you, we have nothing to stand on. Without you, there is no foundation. There is no hope, no strength. There is only despair and discouragement and death and loss and sorrow and grief and frustration and anger. There's only false hopes, false dreams. And so God, cause your church, cause my own soul to press in to these words, like David in the midst of this trial that he's facing, Father, pressed into this reality, this truth of who you are, that, that was able, even in the midst of chaos, to give him an unshakable hope, to give him a rock, a foundation to stand on that endures even in the grave, Father. And so, Lord, would you strengthen us today? Give me words to say well of this passage that you might be honored in your name. Amen. It's, um, it's interesting 
to just consider, I just want you to consider this morning how it is that you experience the Christian life. How it is that your, your faith works. What, is it really, what does it really look like to be a Christian uh, versus just going through the motions? Um, in this world, as we all know and are aware of, there are all kinds of voices. There are all kinds of crazy things that seek to draw you away, that seek to grab your attention. And, and if you're not aware of that at this point in life, then your head's in the sand, right? Um, there, are, there, are, there are constant turmoils and constant things that are trying to cause you to be distracted. And these things are not just outside of us. These things are inside of us. That we have battles to fight with sin and, and struggles with guilt and shame and, and, and anger and hurt and all of these kinds of things are at war in our souls and we are seeking to bad, do battle with them at times. Uh, we are seeking to be at odds or at war with our sin um, and all of these things are, are seeking to call us away. This is, this is the way of the world, right? It is calling us away from God. It is calling us to turn our eyes somewhere else, to put our hope and our trust and our, our future in some other plan, in some other person, in some other thing. And so these, these things are bombarding us all the time. And whether you know it or not, or even care at all, it is doing war with your soul. There is a battle going on for your desires and for your heart and for your loves and your treasures and your pleasures. These things are at odds. And there are basically two ways that you can, you can experience this in your life. And there's an illustration that I think is, is a powerful one. If you've heard me say this before, I'm going to say it again because it it's so illustrates this. But in Homer's Odyssey, there's a story of Ulysses. And this, this Ulysses is one of the gods, and Jason is one of the gods. So this is a Greek mythological story, so just, just bear with me for a second. But this, is so, this so illustrates what I'm betting many of you have experienced and are experiencing in your life right now. And so in this, in this Greek mythological story in Homer's Odyssey, uh, these, these, these gods go off to do war. And they go off to defeat, and they're, they're, it's, it's over a woman, of course, Right? And so, so they go off to do war and they win the battle. And the piece of this story, and this is, you, you have to go read it to get the whole story, so good luck. But the little piece that I want to share with you is on the way back, uh, the story goes that Ulysses and Jason, they're on, they're on their, their ships and they're sailing back, but they have to go by the island of the Sirens. And the, the Sirens are these hideous, murderous, horrible creatures that only want to destroy your life. But the thing is, is they don't look like hideous, horrible, destructive creatures that want to destroy your life. They disguise themselves as beautiful women with amazing singing voices that captivate the hearts of people and captivate the hearts of men. And then after they have captivated you and drawn you in, they kill you. Right? Doesn't that sound like sin? Doesn't that sound like every temptation that we have in our lives? Otherwise, it wouldn't be a temptation, right? You're drawn to these things that seem to promise life, that seem to promise security, that seem to promise everything. You know, uh, If you just buy this product, your life is going to be the best ever. 
Uh, you know, I always love the, if you, if you drink this beer, you know, you'll get the girls in the boat. That's the commercial, right? I mean, that, that's, it, that's the promises of this world, these, these empty promises that look so good, right? And yet in the end of it, it's destruction and devastation and destroys. And so this is the sirens in Homer's Odyssey, and they have to sail by the island of the sirens in order to get home. And so Ulysses, he has a plan of how to not die how to not get taken in because no one can resist the sound of the sirens. And so Ulysses tells, makes wax plugs for all of his men's ears. And he puts plugs in their ears and he tells them, when we get to the island of the sirens, you don't look, you don't look to the side, to the right or the left, just focus straight ahead and keep rowing so that we can get by the sirens. But Ulysses himself, he's curious, like most of us. He wants to experience it. He himself wants to, he wants to have a moment here where he, he wants to hear the sounds. Don't you get like that sometimes? You're like, right? We're, we're curious. Like, we just, we just want to brush up against it. We know that it's maybe bad, but we just, we're just curious enough. We go, we just want to dabble a moment, right? We just want to taste a little bit. And so he has a plan. He tells his men to chain him to the mast of his boat. So that, and, and he tells them no matter how much he screams, no matter how much he he, he orders them, do, do not release him. Do not let him go. So he doesn't plug his ears. He gets chained to the mast of this boat, and they go by the island of the sirens, and sure enough, it works, but Ulysses goes crazy. He is so captivated by the sound of the sirens that he cannot even contain himself, and he is ordering his men to let him go, but they will not do it. And, and amazingly, though, uh, they escape the danger, and he does not die, and they make it past the island of the sirens. That's, that's one experience. Jason had a different method. Instead of chaining himself to the mast, instead of putting plugs in his men's ears, Jason brought along one of the most renowned and most beautiful singers in all of the ancient world. Someone who, when they make music, it captivates everyone. It is like the most superior sound and the most superior and beautiful music ever in the ancient world. And so Jason's, Jason's tactic was, when they get to the island of the sirens, he simply instructed the musician to begin to sing. And I can't remember the musician's name, but in the story. But the musician begins to sing as they get to the island of the sirens. And his voice is so far superior to any other voice. It is so far, far more beautiful than the sirens that the men on Jason's boat are completely oblivious to what's going on with the sound of the sirens. It is drowned out and they are captivated by the beauty and the majesty and the glory of this person's music. It is so overwhelmingly beautiful that they, they don't even pay attention to the sirens and they make it past, they make it past the island. I want to propose to you that that's the way you and I often experience the Christian life in one of those two ways. Ulysses may have survived the sounds of the siren, but only Jason truly triumphed over them. Neither succumbed, neither indulged their desires, both escaped danger, but only one was truly changed and truly overcome the sound. Are you like Ulysses? 
knowing what is dangerous and wrong, seeing all the evils of this world, and so therefore you've employed all kinds of external restraints to chain yourself up, even good religious practices, good religious words, and, and all kinds of good things in your life to try to restrain you, to keep you from the destruction of sin and from all the sounds around you? Or are you like Jason, seeing all the sinful pleasures and all the destruction and all the dangers, knowing how weak your sinful heart is, you turn your eyes to a far superior sound. Something that is far superior to the sirens. And that's something for us as Christians is Jesus Christ. This is the only way, one pastor put it, this is the only way to truly liberate your heart from the slavery of sin and the sound of the voices all around As Paul says in Corinthians, beholding the glory of the Lord, that is, seeing the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. In other words, how is your life and my life truly transformed? How do we actually overcome sin? Is it by chaining ourselves up, making sure that we stay away from all the problems and evils of the world, or is it by focusing our eyes and our lives and our attention onto onto the the most beautiful, the most majestic person in all the world, which is Christ? That's how we're transformed, by beholding the glory of the Lord. Real liberation doesn't come from religious scoldings or better rules and regulations and making sure everybody toes the line and stays in order that true liberation comes only and ultimately from delighting in God himself and knowing him for who he truly is. And this is what David does in this psalm in 16. David begins this psalm in chapter 16 with a petition. It's, It's a petition that actually has been connected to the very plea of Jesus in the garden on the night of Gethsemane. When he pleads with God to say, God, God, Take, take this cup from me. Keep me. Preserve me. Take, take away this sorrow, this hurt. So, so this is the type of thing that David is saying when he says, preserve me, O God. This is, a, this is a way for David to be saying that there is imminent danger. We don't even know what it is, but we can probably look at David's life and just surmise a whole host of things that David faced. All kinds of stuff from his own son going against him and turning against him to, to Saul chasing him around trying to kill him. And, and so we, we could just imagine a number of stories of, of di- difficulties when people turning against him and fighting and warring against him. And so all kinds of things could be here. But whatever it is, there is an imminent threat going on in David's life. Something serious to where he is coming to God with a petition to say, preserve me, O God, save me, in other words. Protect me, take care of me. He's throwing himself at the mercy of God. And then what does David do in this difficulty, in this difficult moment, what does he do? But he turns to God and he begins to assert all kinds of things that he has personally knows about God. And, and, and really, he's, he's gonna give us for the next eight verses, seven verses, a personal testimony. David's not going to assert some things that are some lofty ideas out there. 
We could all sit here this morning and we could go through our head knowledge of what we know about God, the things that we know to be true, that we've heard in the Bible, we've taught in Sunday school. But David's actually going to turn, and, and you get the sense in which this is very personal to him. It's very real. Like this isn't, this isn't somebody else's experience. David is saying, this is, this is who God is and this is who I know him to be personally in my own life. And in the midst of Whatever it is that David is facing, this is absolutely essential to his life. This is what we just sang, right? Turn your eyes upon him. We will, we will fix our eyes on you. We will turn to God, to the one who is supreme. And so David makes these assertions. So we're just going to go through this passage, literally verse by verse. and Just, just look at what David's going to say in these seven verses. Here's David's personal testimony about the Lord, about his Lord. He begins by saying, that for, for, the reason why I say, God, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And so God, he's saying, God is his refuge. <coughs> God is his refuge. He's not saying God is a refuge. He's saying God is my refuge. He's saying this very personally. God is my refuge. A refuge is a place where you can run. We sang about that in the song this morning, right? That God is a refuge. We, we heard even Psalm 46. God is a refuge and a strength. A refuge is a place that you can run. When, when, when everything is pouring in around you and everything is, seems to be dark and difficult and, and as David, in David's life, when his enemies are pressing in, he ran, for instance, when Saul was chasing him around trying to kill him. Where did he go? He found a cave. And he ran into this cave to find comfort, to find um, protection, to get away from the enemy, right? And so he's hiding out in this cave. It's a refuge. And so David is saying, God ultimately is my refuge. God is the one to whom we run. God is the one to whom I rest in his presence, in his arms, in his care. God is a refuge. Is he your refuge? Is this true in your life? Run to him. He is a refuge that, that you can find protection and solace and consolation for your soul. He goes on to say that God is his Lord. It's a way of saying he's his sovereign. He's, he's, the, he's the master. He's the one who knows. We don't know. We don't know much, <laughs> to be honest, right? I find myself sometimes going, we, we think we know so much. And then we realize at moments in life, like yesterday, and you just go, we don't know much, right? We need God so much. We, what we do know is that our God is in control even when all heck is going wrong, right? We know that nothing catches our God off guard. He's not somehow up there going, oh man, this is, this is crazy. No, he knows he knows what tomorrow holds. He knows what the next day holds. He knows. He is the Lord. And David is, is saying that he's not just a Lord out there. He's not just someone who, the, the master of the universe out there. No, he's my Lord. He's the ruler of my life and my heart, my destiny. He's the captain of the ship. He's the one who steers everything. Verse 2, he says, Apart from him, I have, or I have no good apart from you, God. That's a basically a way of saying that God is my supreme treasure. That there is absolutely nothing good apart from God. That doesn't mean there's nothing else good in the world, right? 
Because God has given to us all good things, as we said last week, good gifts that come down from the Father of lights, and all of these things are good things. But what David is saying is that above God, there is absolutely nothing higher, no better good than him. That's not even a sentence, right? He is the supreme good. You can't get more than God. He's ultimate. He's supreme. And so he's, he's saying, apart from, apart from God, apart from you, Lord, I have no good thing. There's, it's as if nothing else is good except unless God is truly good in my life. Is he the supreme treasure of your life? This is what David is turning to. He's saying it's not just a supreme treasure. He's my supreme treasure. He's the ultimate treasure of my life. And if God is the ultimate treasure of our life, if he's truly, if there's nothing good outside of him, and if every other good actually finds its goodness in the fact that he is good, if God is good and that good and supremely good, then God's people are also his delight, right? That's what he says. He says in verse 3 that as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight, If God is good, then God's people are also those to whom we can delight in, whom we can lean on. You you know this in your life, right? I get to fly on planes a lot, and I sit by all kinds of different people in all kinds of different circumstances, and sometimes I'm sitting beside somebody who is just completely, I don't know, going through whatever, but they, they don't have anything to do with God. They don't want to talk about God. They don't want anything to do, and we'll have conversations. Maybe in three hours, we might get around. There might be an opportunity, whatever, but, but we're, we're, I'm, I'm wrestling with, okay, God, uh, you know, man, this person needs Jesus, and we're having this conversation, but sometimes I get to sit by somebody like, like when I was coming back from South Dakota recently, and I was sitting beside this black man who had this hat on that had a, a thing about faith on it, and man, we hit it off. Like there was, there was a, I don't even know his name. I can't tell you it now. I knew it at the moment. But I don't, I don't, I don't know anything about him. I can picture him. And we had everything in common. Like we immediately, our hearts were knit together like nobody's business. And we were talking about the Lord. We were talking about how God was at work even in our country and all the chaos. And it was a very beautiful thing. But we had an instant connection. This is, in essence, this is what he's saying, saying God, God is such a treasure. God's people are our delight as well. We delight in this relationship that we have, in this foundation. We, we have everything in common with one another, and it, and it brings a sense of joy and delight, a delight in God, ultimately. And then he contrasts it in verse 4. On the other side of this, he says, sorrows, the sorrows of those who run after other gods, multi- they sh- they'll multiply. They will multiply. He's, he's contrasting this idea of, of those who seek after the Lord and the Lord alone, those who, who treasure him and see him as supremely good. And then he says, he says but for those, those who go after other gods, again, all those false hopes, all those, all those false dreams and false promises, all those other gods out there, which we are so tempted to go after, he says, there, if you go after those other gods, your sorrows will be multiplied over and over and over and over again. And some of you have experienced that in your life. I feel like that's, that's what last night was. The sorrows of those who do not have God, they just keep multiplied and they just compound and they compound and they compound and it becomes unbearable. 
He says, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out. In other words, I'm not even going to get involved in their practices. And then he says, I won't even let their names be on my lips. It's the people of God. It's God and his people that I delight in. And I will not, I will not muddle myself in these practices that will draw me away. I will not go after other gods. Number, verse five, he says um, that the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. God is his supreme choice. (laughs) Think about that. When you think about a cup, it's something, it's something that gets filled up. It's, it's, a, it's a sense of full, like we joke about the glass half full or half empty. But with God, the cup is always full and overflowing. And he's saying, God is my, my chosen portion. And then he says, this, this, this portion that God has given to me, my cup being full, which is God himself that fills the cup, right? And so he's saying this portion, he says, he says God, you're the one who actually holds my lot. In other words, this, this gift that you've given to me of yourself, you're also the one who preserves the gift for me. It cannot be taken away from me. Isn't this what Paul is saying in Romans 8? He says, neither life nor death nor heaven nor hell nor any power. He goes through the whole list and says, nothing in all of creation can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He's saying that God is my chosen portion. He's my cup and he holds my lot. It's secure. Nothing can take that away. Nothing, no governments, no kings, no circumstances, no death, nothing can steal that from us. David is simply coming and saying, this is who God is. He's my supreme choice. He's my portion. He fills my cup. Then he says that God is his beautiful inheritance. He says, the the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I want you to imagine this. He's being pressed by something serious and imminent. And he's turning to God saying, God, you're the one who draws my lines. In in Israel, when they went into the promised land, each person was given a a lot, a a place to live, right? They were given a piece of ground. And so this this is a this picture of this physical reality that they got. He's saying, This is this is the portion that I have in God. God has drawn my lines. He's given me a good piece of land. Right? I have a good inheritance. Like it's in the valley where it's nice and plush and it's, it's amazing, right? And he's saying, he's saying God, uh, you, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. If you are in Christ this morning, this is your life. I'm not talking about your piece of property you live on, whether you live on the lake or in the slum. It doesn't even matter, right? He's not talking about physical property ultimately. He's talking about the spiritual reality of what you have in Christ. That if you're in Christ, the lines have fallen for you in pleasant places. The favor of God has been placed upon your life. He has chosen you and called you and sanctifying you and working in you. And he's one day going to give you an inheritance that we're going to talk about in a minute. And so, so David is simply declaring that God, God is his beautiful inheritance. And lastly, he's his counselor in verse 7. It's the Lord who gives him counsel. Even in the night, he says, my heart instructs me. In other words, God's at work, even while I'm sleeping, God's instructing my heart. That God is my counselor. He's the one who, who counsels me, who directs me, who gives me comfort and consolation in the midst of trial and difficulty. 
And so I will turn to God. And so in light of this, in light of this, David makes, uh, he turns now from this personal testimony in these seven verses of saying, this is who God is in my life. This is how I know him. This is what I know to be true. This is my experience with God, my relationship with God. And now he turns because of that, and he's gonna make some absolute certain sort of declarations then. He's saying this being true, this being absolutely true, in verse eight then he turns and says, so, so in light of this, in light of who I know and who God is and in, in, in personally in his life even, he says, I have set the Lord therefore always before me. In other words, I look to him. Why? He says, because he is at my right hand. Because, because of who God is, because he is always before me, because he, this is a crazy statement by the way, because God is at my right hand. That's a, that's a picture in the Bible. When we talk about the right hand, we're talking about power. The right hand, whenever it talks about God, Jesus being at the right hand of the Father, like this, it's a place of power and authority. It's a place of protection and, and advocacy in reality. Jesus being at the right hand of the Father, advocating on our behalf because of his blood that was shed upon the cross. And so, so here he says that, God, you are at my right hand. And because of this, because of this, I will not be shaken. Clearly, David is not saying that tough things will not come toward him, that the winds of life will not batter him and beat him down. But he's saying, with God at my right hand, in essence, he's saying what Paul said in Romans 8 again, if God be for us, who can be against us? If God is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So he makes this very confident assertion. I will not be shaken in verse 8. In verse 9, he goes on to say, therefore, the, the therefore is basically, he's saying, therefore, my heart is glad. Again, he's going through some imminent threat, and yet he's saying, in light of who God is, in light of the reality of his presence in my life, the fact that he's at my right hand, therefore, my heart my inner being is glad and my whole being rejoices and my flesh dwells secure. Like that's confidence. He's saying because of who God is, because he is with me, he's present, my heart is glad even in the midst of chaos. I can rejoice. I will rejoice. It's the therefore is basically saying that the results of who God is is that it results in joy and praise. And in fact, in some ways it answers the question that arises in the petition in verse one. Preserve me from what? Preserve me from whatever it is. I will be unshaken from what? From whatever comes my way. God will preserve me. I will not be shaken from whatever batters my life because my confidence is in the Lord who is with me and at my right hand. And I am secure in that. I love that. I will dwell secure. You see, outside of, outside of God, there is no security. There is nothing to hang your hat on. There's nothing to bank your life on. When everything falls apart, 
What is it that we're going to lean on? What is it that we're going to put our hope in? What are those things? That was my question to those kids last night. What is the foundation? What do you turn to? What do you have? If God is worthy of praying to, if he is worthy of us to pray to him and to seek consolation from him, he has to be a God who is able to preserve our lives and to get us through the crap that comes our way. He has to be big enough, right? We have to have a view of God like David to turn our eyes to this God, to know the God who can keep us from being shaken even when everything else is being shaken. That's the God that we need to, that's that's the God who is worthy of us praying to and worshiping and rejoicing in even when everything is falling apart. Verse 10, for you will not abandon my soul to to the grave is what Shul means, or let your holy one see corruption. In one sense, this is what David is, David is saying, God, God, don't, don't abandon me even, even in death. Even in death. See, death is the, death is the, the killer of this world's hopes, Right? Death removes all of our hopes. Everyone who's put their faith and their trust and their hopes in this life that you're living, death is the very thing that stands between hope and you. (laughs) Because death removes all your hope. There is no hope. Death takes away that hope. And, And David is saying, God, even in death, preserve my life. Even in death will you be with me. Will you not abandon me? This verse actually has way bigger significance than what is just being spoken of here in David's personal life. In Acts chapter two, in fact, uh, Peter, when he stands up at Pentecost and he preaches that great sermon on the day of Pentecost and, and several thousand people come to know Christ, when he's preaching that sermon, he quotes this passage and he reminds us, and in his quoting of this passage, he reminds us in verses 30 to 35 that, that actually the the person that this is ultimately going to apply to is, is the, the very hope of the world, to Jesus. It's a messianic sort of moment where David is saying this is a reality in David's day, but it's also pointing to a reality beyond David, and Peter applies this verse to Jesus. Um, in fact, let's just read it. Acts 2, it's such a powerful little thing and gives us a picture of the gospel. He says, brothers, verse 29 actually, I may, not, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and he was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He's simply just saying, look, this is David. David was, David was the king of Israel, but he, was, he died, he was buried, his body is decayed. In other words, he's not the Messiah. Our hope is not in David. And he says, but being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, 2 Samuel chapter 7, he says, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades or the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. So so Peter applies these words of this psalm to Jesus and to his resurrection, that Jesus did not see decay, that his body did not see corruption, but he was resurrected by the power of God. In fact, he says, this Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And he goes on, therefore, to call people to this Jesus. 
And so this is a picture of hope, light, that, that, that we can have security both in life and in death, that Jesus ultimately comes and conquers death on our behalf, that we may have what verse 11 says, that we may have life that goes beyond this life, that we may have hope that goes beyond the hopes of this world, that goes beyond this physical moment. He says in verse 11, this beautiful end, he says, you make known to me the path of life, for in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We can barely comprehend that verse. You and I sitting here today can barely comprehend what fullness of joy is actually like. Because we're not experiencing the fullness of it yet. We are tasting it. We are tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. I think of Paul's words where he says, we look dimly as in a mirror, but one day we will see face to face. That on this earth, we see things somewhat dim. We see it, we taste it, and it's good, and it's amazing, but we have no idea what fullness of joy would be like. To have, to have no sin, to have no death, to have no sorrow, to have no guilt, to have no shame, nothing that stands in your way. All those things being removed, as Revelation tells us. Every tear wiped away, every, every sorrow, no more sin, right? One day in the presence of God, we will experience fullness of joy that we cannot comprehend. We can only imagine with our minds and in your presence or at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We, we think of pleasure we tend to think of negative things, don't we? We think of sensual, sexual things. We think of sinful things, things that draw us away from God. But here, here we see this thing turned around to go, no, there's, there, no there's, there are pleasures in God's presence that will so captivate you, that will so grab you that you cannot comprehend. It will be so good. The path of life is that life Ultimately, this passage would point us to, is that life which is found in faith in Jesus Christ, that trusts in him for our salvation, that, that, that has our hope in the resurrection of Christ, and that one day we too will be raised with him, that one day we too will be in his presence, we will see face to face, we will experience without any hindrances, we will experience fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That is our hope. That is, that is our longing. That is what we cling to. We know that this world, Jesus said, in this world you will have troubles. And man, do we know that to be true. But Jesus says, but fear not, John 16. I will, I have, not I will, I have overcome the world. And he overcame that by this promise in verse 10. He overcame that through his resurrection from the dead. He conquered it for you and for me. That we, that we do not have to live in despair. We do not have to live in fear. We do not have to live in angst and wringing our hands and wondering what is going to happen. We, we can be absolutely confident like David. We can say, I will not be shaken because my hope is not in this world. My hope is not in governments. My hope is not in the fact that I will even be alive tomorrow because none of us knows that but my hope is in Christ. It's in his life. 
May we put our faith and our trust in him ultimately alone for our salvation. That's what we need today. That's what we need. That's what these kids need. That's what you need. That's what I need. We need God. Let us, let us take serious what we just sang, that we would fix our eyes on him, that you would plead with God this morning as we close this service with communion. You would plead with God to be your refuge. You would plead with God to be your Lord, to be the supreme treasure of your life, that, he, that his people would be your delight, that you would not run after other gods, that you would rejoice, that, or that you, would, that you would experience him as the one who fills your cup, the supreme choice, your beautiful inheritance, your counselor, and that you would know that because he's with you, because he is present in your life, you will not be shaken. You might be moved, might be stirred, <laughs> but you will not be shaken. You will not be overcome. Put your faith in him this morning. Let's pray.